Many of you know Dr. Hunt because he at one time was a worshiper here, a member of the congregation, and they moved to Martin, where he currently is the professor of communications at the University of Tennessee Martin, and he's been teaching the classes on Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Uh, and he, he's Mr. Vor Electronic Vortex, and uh, he's going to be our homilist today. So I'll lay my hands on him and pray for him. And phone shut. <laughs> Father God, I just come to you this morning uh, asking your blessing on Art as he uh, gives of his time and his talent and his uh, gifts to share the gospel with us in the ways that you have uh, gifted him uh, in particular. Ask your blessings upon him. Uh, open our ears and our hearts that the truths that are uh, spoken might uh, be planted firmly and that we might use them as we walk about every day glorifying you. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Art. So you'll find inside your order of service, a little handout. You're welcome to use that. It has a little ship on it. It's not necessary that you follow along uh, with that, but it might help. Now, most of you know about the sinking of the Titanic, but I doubt many of you have heard about the sinking of the RMS Taylor. And yet the fully rigged Iron Clipper ship that sailed on her maiden voyage in 1854 has been described as the first Titanic. We know that the Titanic sank because she did not listen to reports of icebergs in the area. But the Taylor sank because the shipbuilders did something really dumb. They didn't anticipate the ship's iron hull would discombobulate the compasses. Forty-eight hours after leaving port, the Taylor ran into a fog and then into a storm. When the crew thought that they were sailing south into the Irish Sea, they were actually headed west for Ireland, and the ship ran right into an island. Of the 650 people on board, 370 perished. The heart is like a compass. Proverbs tells us to keep the heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Augustine knew about the human heart, and that's why he prayed, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You know, the restless heart is a funny thing. It's funny because our hearts were made by God to love. And that's why the great theologian Bob Dylan once said, You're going to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. The problem is, is that we often love the wrong things, and our hearts become discombobulated. 
And so setting the heart aright is a matter of Christian formation. And it can keep us from shipwrecking our lives. Now James Smith has written a book about this and it's called You Are What You Love. And I suppose we could call our message today after that same title. I'll be referring a little bit to Smith, but he reminds us in the book that people live for what they love. They get up in the morning and they do their thing day after day, and this forms them. It, you see, it's not just what you think that forms you, it's also what you do. Now, Smith had a term for this to talk about these kinds of things, and he calls it cultural liturgies. Smith says, all kinds of cultural rhythms and routines are, in fact, rituals that function as pedagogies of desire, precisely because they tactically and covertly train us to love a certain version of the kingdom. They teach us to long for some rendition of the good life. He says these are not just things that, that, that we do, but they do something to us. For example, Smith says that the time that we spend in a shopping mall, a kind of secular temple in itself, is a cultural liturgy that holds out the good of consumerism. The time and the affection that we spend watching, say, professionalized sports is a kind of cultural liturgy that holds out the good of spectatorship. The time the teenagers and preteens spend on their smartphones uh, taking them to bed with them is a habit of the heart that constitutes a cultural liturgy. And because a typical American checks their phone about every six and a half minutes in the day, that in itself is a cultural liturgy. Of course, some of these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but they shape us in ways that we don't realize. And here's what you need to understand. People who build malls and people who produce football programming and people who design smartphones, they really don't care about what you think, but they care very much about what you love. The people at Apple don't want you to just use your iPhone. They want you to love it. So if cultural liturgies are as powerful as Smith says that they are, we need to counter them with other liturgies. Fortunately, we already have some of those at our disposal. And the first one is to be found at church and concerns worship. So church is where we hear about those rival kingdoms that will have their end. For example, the point of apocalyptic literature is not just prediction, but it's also 
the unveiling of realities for what they really are. In the book of Revelation, we find these words. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, fallen. For all the nations have drunk the wine and the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now when we hear such things, we are reminded that the best cultural liturgies that don't factor in God will come to nothing. And so here are six important principles about Christian worship and how they calibrate our hearts toward the kingdom of God. First, the Christian faith is caught as much as it is taught. The Christian faith is taught as much as it is caught as much as it is taught. When done properly, Christian worship implants the biblical story of redemption into our very bones. And it does this on a weekly basis. Second, when done properly, Christian worship does not just target the intellect, but also the whole person. Worship enters the ear gate, and the eye gate, and the nose gate, and the taste gate, and the touch gate, as was discussed last week. Worship, therefore, is incarnational, affecting both the head and the heart, both the soul and the body. Third, Christian worship provides a corrective to the secular liturgies that surround us. Christian formation, you see, is a matter of taking off the old man who is corrupted and putting on the new man who is holy and in the image of Christ. So worship recalibrates us to the divine narrative and it reminds us of God's redemptive story and our story in it. Also, Christian worship gives us a vision of the beauty of Christ. We are creatures who are moved by appeals to the heart, pathos, as much as we are moved by appeals to the head, logos. We are motivated by what captures our imagination. Therefore, worship casts a vision for the beauty of Christ in word and in sacrament. Worship is also communal. On Sunday, we come before God together not just as individuals. We gather together. We confess together. We listen together. We respond together. We commune at the table together. And we are sent out together. And then finally, Christian worship utilizes both variety and repetition. Christian worship utilizes both variety and repetition. And this is intentional because worship is a habit of the heart and it forms our Christian posture toward God. 
We often think that whatever is repetitious is monotonous. G.K. Chesterton reminds us that this is not always the case. That sometimes the best things in life are repetitious, especially good things. And children, they know this instinctively. Chesterton says in Orthodoxy this, he says, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are, are in spirit fierce and free, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they're nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people, Chesterton says, are not strong enough always to rejoice in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to rejoice in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And in the evening, do it again to the moon. So the church is a place where we calibrate the heart. Now, we may only spend a few hours a week at church. We spend much more time at home. Therefore, the Christian home can also be a place where we recalibrate the heart. And so I would like to give you some important household liturgies. Especially as we think about going into the season of Lent, I think these things are very important. There is the garage liturgy. Here, father and son work together with their greasy hands to make new objects or repair old ones. Stories are being told in the garage. Stories that place the boy in a, in, in a larger story. Stories that give him some idea of where he came from, what's expected of him, and where they are headed in God's great big story. There's the kitchen liturgy. The kitchen liturgy. Here, mother and daughter have their elbows up in flour, creating tonight's dinner or tomorrow's potluck. Narratives are being shared. Narratives that place the girl in a larger narrative. Narratives that give some idea of where she came from, what's expected of her, and where they're headed in God's great big story. Of course, we don't mean to exclude the men from the kitchen or the women from the garage, for that matter. What part of the house we find ourselves in comes naturally according to our inclinations. But there's the dining room liturgy. Here, the entire family is gathered around the table. No one is listening to music through an earpiece. No one is glued to a screen. Listen. And you can hear the words, bless us, O Lord, and these gifts which we are about to receive from your bounty. And then the food is passed and the day's events are rehearsed. Encouragement is dispensed. Questions are asked. Uh, Sally wants to know when she can have the whole kitchen to herself to bake a pie. 
Johnny wants to know why there's evil in the world. And little Ruby, she wants to know who lives on the moon. And all the questions are discussed. Because nobody has to be anywhere anytime soon. The kids love dinner even more when there are guests around the table. There's the living room liturgy. Here, family devotionals are head before bedtime. Scripture reading and catechism and prayer. It never takes more than 15 or 20 minutes for these things. During the year, in the living room, the Christian calendar is honored in a tangible way. One, rather, you know, either wrapping a Christmas gift or anticipating Easter and painting an Easter egg and candles and symbols and music and art and drama flourish in the living room because it's an, it's an imagination station for the kingdom of God. There's the bedroom liturgy. The imagination also flows in the bedroom. So books like the Chronicles of Narnia come to life. Sally is deep into sense and sensibility. And Johnny is hearing the Hobbit read for the first time. And Ruby lights up as she absorbs the colorful page, pages of Goodnight Moon. There's the backyard liturgy. In the backyard, Dad mows the grass and Mom snips the shrubs, and Sally paints the patio furniture, and Johnny feeds the dog, and Ruby holds a funeral service for George, the dead grasshopper. And there's a family, there's a family garden in the backyard, which everyone tends. Good gifts come from the family garden. And so our subject today has been on Christian formation, which is a matter of keeping the heart fixed on Christ and his kingdom. Christian formation is not passive, it's active. And it requires us to recalibrate the heart constantly. This is why we are told in Proverbs, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. You know, the world, they have their own liturgies. And so the church and the Christian home, they need to have their liturgies too. These Christ-forming liturgies act as pacemakers to set aright our defective hearts. They set the heart aright so that our hearts can be tuned toward God's heart.